Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-list of food writers. It's about life, it's about culture, it's about politics all through the prism of food. And this week I'm zooming down to southwest France to move in with Deborah Robertson, whose latest book, Notes from a Small Kitchen Island, is a celebration of hosting, of feeding friends and living life beautifully. So I'm from that line of women where we all did and do practical things. Their way of dignifying their life and giving their life grace was to do something with their hands, to honour their lives with their hands. So somebody was always knitting a collar for a coat or making some curtains or, or making some rock buns. Deborah is the Telegraph columnist who shows us how it's done. She's the how-to guru, the doyen of the declutter, the dog mother of canine cuisine and queen of cooking for cats. I asked her if that's how she sees herself. I don't see myself as a guru, but I do think sometimes I can be quite bossy. But also I do think to live as beautifully as you can, as well as you can, is one of the greatest things you can do for yourself in life. And I don't think I'm an expert in that, but I do think I have some of those things mastered. So if that's what you want to do yourself, it's all very hard one because I have had many a domestic disaster. But I think I can maybe uh, point the way. Well, I mean, I was thinking about the 15-minute fling, which you write about in the Declutter Mm. book. And when you moved to France, of which we shall Mm. talk much later, did you do the 15-minute fling? I just had this wonderful idea of Deborah Robertson, you know, literally getting the bin bag. I did. Did you? Well, because we had a, you know, quite a big house in London full of things that I loved. But then I also thought that because I'm by no means a minimalist, I mean, in my decluttering book, I do write about the kind of tyranny of minimalism, if you're not naturally that kind of person, because I think what happens if you force that on yourself, actually, what happens is you make yourself quite sad. Mm. Um, and then you just fill up the spaces you spent every last weekend for months decluttering. So I think everybody has to find their level of comfort. And um, so my level of comfort was quite full. But I did make sure I loved all of the things that I had and I used them. I didn't have one perfect vase and a jam jar with a single rose in it. (laughs) I had quite a busy house. I mean, I can see... Uh, a number of boxes unpacked behind you. Oh, yeah. Well, we haven't got any shelves. This is a whole different thing for me because we bought this big old house in France and um, it needs a complete renovation. So going from my London house, which was sort of perfectly designed for my way of living, to this house that hasn't really been lived in for 20 years, it was quite liberating in a weird way because I had this kind of perfect way of existing for me. Um, And now I'm virtually camping out in this house because there's so much to do and we can't do anything inside until they've finished outside. So I am literally living in a house of boxes and Ikea Billy bookcases, (laughs) which I'll do for now. I love a Billy bookcase. And it's quite, I don't know, it is great, actually, because it's not my natural state. And liberating is what you do. I mean, I have to Mm. say the, the book... 
and we'll go into that. I I mean, I just Mm. think, oh, my God, how on earth are you hosting so many people? How are you doing so much? (laughs) Because I thought I will never Mm. cook that way. I will never fill my fridge so that my guests can just come and snack on some Mm. whole baked salmon in the middle of the night. And, you know, I mean, (laughs) I'm just not that kind of person. But liberating you are all about. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about moving to a place where you can feel totally liberated we'll go into your full food moments yeah. and we'll go deeply into france in your fourth food moment but just before mm. we get there tell me about that decision to move from stoke newington which you love and you write about mm. so beautifully in this book to somewhere where you feel like you're always on holiday what happened was that we have always come to this village in southwest france on holiday for years and years and years. And, you know, I did what lots of people do, I think, is every time I was on holiday, a good chunk of my time would be spent looking in estate agents' windows, not really thinking that we would ever move here, but because I just love to look at houses. And also, when I'm on holiday, wherever I am, I always like to pretend a little bit that I live here. And then just after the first lockdown, when we were able to travel again, we came here in that September for, we thought, about a month. And then that became six weeks. And that became two months. And then it became four months. And then we were here for Christmas. Um, And while we were here, we both realized we could work here perfectly easily whenever we needed to. And this house that I'd fallen in love with years ago, which is right on the port, beautiful old house, always very much the Cinderella house. In fact, once we rented the house directly opposite it, and I used to look at it and think, why is that beautiful house so abandoned? Why is nobody living there? Occasionally, you'd see a light on in an upper window, and I'd think, maybe somebody's there, I don't know. But when we were here... um, in 2020 it was a sale meant to be and i said oh well i said to my husband look we need to go and look inside that house but if i go into that house i don't know what will happen so you just have to be prepared and i that's i walked into the house with the estate agent and i stood in the hallway it's got a long tiled hallway and then a marble stair stairs that curl around at the back and a big window at the back and I stood there, and the estate agent, I have no idea what she was saying, but she was chatting away. I mean, she was probably thinking, you know, this hallway is so many metres, blah, blah, blah. I have no idea what she was saying, because all of the hair on my head was just oh, standing amazing. on end, and I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, this is my house. I don't know how it's my house. I don't know how we're going to pull this off, but I know that this is my house. And um, that was that, This really. is post-Brexit. Yeah. And how is it your house? How well, did you manage that? Well, my husband's Irish. So, you know, thank, well, he has an Irish p- passport. So that made it possible yeah. for us. Um, the edited version is we went home to London, which I still love. I wasn't tired of London at all. I love London. Put our house on the market. And I loved that house. It was the sort of external manifestation of me, I think. It was my create i don't paint i can't sing houses are my creative yeah. act i think and home is my creative act and 
but it felt okay to put it on the market and I never ever thought I would be okay about that and I absolutely yeah. was even though on the day we left I went from the top of the house to the bottom and this is sounds very weird I kissed every door frame do. on the way I down I've done it. <laughs> I'm not very woo at all yeah. but I just you know I had to do that because that house nurtured us and loved us and we'd had so many amazing times in that house but I really almost left it without a backward glance and this feels just very exciting because i i'm a cancerian if you believe in that sort of horoscope thing and i am the typical cancerian i cook i make houses i garden so leaving it and moving here into a house that's still full of boxes because we have no cupboard shelves anything yet made me feel like if i can do that what else can i do if I can just leave that all behind me and move on and make this... Because I'm very risk-averse normally. I am not that sort of adventurous person. So it's been very liberating. As somebody, you know, I'm in my mid-50s. I would have been very easy for me to just spin along in the life that I had extremely happily and extremely gratefully. Yeah. It's the epic declutter. It's the epic declutter. Yeah. It truly is. But it, it just feels like, oh, gosh, I did that. So I can do all sorts of other things. It's very youthening. Isn't it? It's really brave. And I love that. I don't know if it's... It doesn't feel brave, which has surprised me. Mm. It feels natural. I totally get that. But mm. I was talking to Sophie Grigson about, mm. you know, because what she did is she just sold everything. She's in Puglia, yeah. Yeah, she just mm. sold everything, put a, one box in the back of her car and went mm. off with nowhere in particular to go. She was looking for a one euro house, but actually she didn't really know where Amazing. she was going. And that adventure, yeah. she said it didn't feel brave either. She just mm. knew that she had to do it and it felt liberating. And I mm. love these stories. Um, you know, you know that I've got a plan to, to head yeah. south, yeah. Uh, you know, with my Leith chef diploma under my arm and, <laughs> and see what happens. I mean, it may take a couple mm. of years, but I think that it's really important mm. to keep doing these things. I think see what happens Mm. is the biggest tribute you can pay to yourself it's an enormous act of trust in yourself Mm. which i think it's 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 different from bravery or courage you are just saying to yourself whatever happens i can cope with this whatever comes next i can handle it and that's how i feel and i don't think that's quite the same as being brave yeah. I think it's about being confident. Do you know what? I think it's to do with age and wisdom. Yeah. I love getting older and feeling braver all the time. Mm, me too. Knowing that actually I've been through so many different circumstances and so mm. many different episodes in my life where actually it was fine. It didn't. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to be fine, but then it's fine. And so I can mm. look back and go, well, I've kind of been here before. It, mm. It'll be fine with some kind of confidence. And, and mm. that's what I love. And, you know, I, I, I look at my kids and I think, oh, God, I, I feel a little bit sorry for you that you're not yeah. quite there yet. But it's you hard. Be. Yeah. I think it's also, even if it's not fine, mm, you can fine. handle it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that is a, a very freeing feeling when you get that. And I think women particularly in our 50s, we get that. Yeah. And sometimes I do wish we got it earlier, but it's a kind of blissful, delicious thing to exactly. get it. We've got the rest of our lives to enjoy yeah, it. Exactly. Tell me how it feels when you're living in boxes in a yeah. house that you've barely moved into and yeah. the entire your entire London community comes to stay with you. <laughs> well, I do warn them 
that we are camping out a little bit. <laughs> but you know what? People love the adventure of it because I think lots of our friends slightly feel like they wish they could do this or they're thinking about doing this. So they like to um, see how it works. In fact, I do. I have accidentally morphed into being a seaside landlady. <laughs> I, I, we have been here since last September and if we've had... 12 lots of house guests in this unboxed house in fact i've got one of my best friends and her husband coming this afternoon so you know it's just constant laundry sheets and pressing uh and beds and each we're sort of adding a little bit we've got we're working on the room so we've got slightly more beds and more bedrooms now but we only still have one bathroom that functions properly so it is a bit like I think it's a bit like being a student, to be honest, yeah. um, which I quite like. <laughs> Absolutely. It reduces things down to the most important things in life. Yeah. One of the, the things that you talk about in the book is, is hosting. And mm. that's what you're putting to the test now. Um, mm. I mean, we'll, we'll go into some of those food moments in, in a minute. Mm. But when you're hosting these 12 different mm. sets of <laughs> friends, mm. are you finding the food easier to prepare for them because it's the local seasonality of where you are in in southwest france there's certainly that um but i never really found it hard i don't think i'm cooking in a different way or entertaining in a different way particularly here because i've always always been a great advocate of don't do everything from scratch it shouldn't be a test nobody is giving you a mark afterwards or maybe they are but those are totally the wrong sort of people you should have in your house so even when I was in London you know I'd buy some pate and salami and the rest and lay that out and that would be a starter and I'd make something you could make ahead for the main course probably I, I mean I hardly ever cook anything where the last line of, is, of the recipe is serve immediately because who needs the stress or the, and then I might buy a dessert or I might make I love to make ice cream so I might make some ice cream that I just bung in the freezer the day before and then bring it out the last minute and I do that here and that's quite a French way of being you know I don't know any French women who make puddings desserts they just don't they cheese or men cheese or shopping they go to the our village is about 8,000 people and we've got so many different bakeries and one of them I go to for bread and the other one I go to for patisserie yeah um and the skill is shopping yeah I love what you say about how to host when you don't prepare you say it's about as restful yeah. as putting on your tights in a room full of kittens I feel that <laughs> it's true. um but yeah. actually you do have rules and you've kind of alluded to some of them don't mm. invite people who you don't like yeah <laughs> never never say never ever over. i was talking to melissa hemsley about this as well the other day uh, she yeah. said exactly that mm. don't no. say come on over it'll be fine yeah. no only invite people who you truly love to feed that's number one yeah. on your list oh, isn't but it? they can be people you've just met i love having new people um 
but they have to be people you just you know how you meet a new person and you have a little bit of a spark you can tell they're your kind of person or you think they are and those people get at least one free pass to come (laughs) (laughs) and also i always think if you because you know in london we have our sort of gang of friends my mother calls the usual suspects you know if i used to say oh we had people over for lunch and there was the usual suspect so uh, you know our really oldest friends which is lovely but i always like to throw in some fresh meat with those you know some new people because i think everybody behaves better for a start everybody's more interesting so you know take a chance on new people but never have people really i think out of a sense of obligation which means also you should never i don't think you should really accept invitations from people because you think it might be useful to you but you'll never invite them into your house um so you know i do think it's important to reciprocate when you can not everybody can and you know i get it sometimes there are people a bit intimidated to invite me (laughs) to dinner but prepping is everything for you isn't it so give us some of your top tips for hosting in terms of preparing i think don't do too much people who are uncomfortable with having people over cooking for people they think every single thing needs to dance on the piano you know so you might do a roast leg of lamb but then all of the side dishes are recipes as well so you're actually making about six different things that sometimes they're they it's too much you know so do your leg of lamb yeah. and some potatoes because, my God, you always have to have potatoes. But then do one thing. Just do some green beans with a little butter and salt. Yeah. Don't do nine million things and let yourself buy things uh, for sure. And have plenty. Have fewer things, but in abundance. Let's go into how you got to where you are. Your mother wasn't a great cook. Mm. She wasn't just not a great cook. Well, she never cooked. So nobody can discern whether she was a good or a bad cook or what. But your first food moment introduces us to that background, that Mm. very solid uh, northern Mm. background of yours. Tell us about your grandmother and her sisters, Lily, Dolly, Louie and Alice. I know, aren't they brilliant? They were all extremely ferociously bright and industrious women. And they were all... Their mother was Welsh and um, had that very chapel thing of the devil makes work for idle hands. So they always had to be doing something. And all of them had a skill. You know, my auntie Dolly was a brilliant knitter and crochet. My grandmother sewed. Um, my auntie Louie cooked. So, And at one point, when they were all quite ancient, they all lived in the same street. So literally, as a child, I used to go in and out of their houses. And Auntie Louise's was the best because there was always like a cake in a tin or a pie or a something. So your first food moment is Auntie Louise corned beef and potato pie. Very simple recipe. Tell us about that recipe. Well, I think it's about using what you have and what's inexpensive and making something that's very inexpensive, elevating it into something that's really good and always though she was a great cake baker my auntie louis i like to bake and i quite like cakes but i always love savory things more and if you can put a bit of hp sauce on it all the better so this pie 
is such a treat for me, even now when I have access. You know, she would be going to the corner shop or maybe fine fair. I've got access to the world's larder now, as so many of us have. But even now, this pie, I just love it. And I even make it here. I, I have brought corned beef to France so I can make this pie. Isn't that crazy? I made it for some French friends and they really loved it. Well, they said they did. They looked genuine <laughs> that they liked it. It comes from a rich tradition in your family mm. of, of making the best of what you've got. But my grandmother's terrible cook, absolutely disgracefully bad cook. And, um, but I think all of them did a thing, had their thing. And I think, you know, because they were from a very poor family, they were from a mining family, their way of dignifying their life and giving their life grace was to do something with their hands, mm. to honour their lives with their hands. So somebody was always knitting a collar for a coat or making some curtains mm. or or making some rock buns. Mm. So I'm from that line of women where we all did and do practical things. Mm. But my mother, because, you know, she was born in the middle of the war, she and my grandmother, my grandfather died when she was eight. So she grew up, you know, um, in quite difficult circumstances. And there wasn't a lot of food. And so she always said to me, I could never be interested in food because if I was interested in food, I would have been very unhappy. Mm. So I used to nourish myself by going to the library and living in my head. Mm. And um, so I sort of understand that. And to this day, she could literally live on smoked salmon sandwiches every single day and wouldn't mm. care. But she always encouraged me to cook. And to write it all down because mm. she's a writer. So that's always important to her. But I mean, when we were children, my brother and I could both cook. And she was writing children's books then. And she, we were allowed to be in the kitchen and she would buy us almost any ingredient because it was like our playground. And so many of my friends from school, you know, the kitchen was very much their mother's domain. And we might be allowed in to make some biscuits or a Victoria sponge or something, but we weren't allowed in it to play. Whereas in my house, my parents' house where I grew up, um, the kitchen was no more emotionally loaded than the sitting room or the hallway. You know, who cares? And my mum always used to say, look, you can do what you want as long as there is... Uh, any flames or blood are intentional, you know. And so she loved it because we'd be quiet. We'd be making all sorts of insane things. Because I always, I always loved to read. And I always thought with recipes, if you could read a recipe, you could make that. Yeah. And it could be anything. And I had no concept of anything being hard yeah. or difficult. If I could read it, I could cook it. Yeah. And so I used to make it, well, exactly. And I used to make extraordinary things. Yeah. I didn't okay. use to bake very much because I was much more excited about trussing a pheasant or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was your mother. She was obviously really paying attention to this and encouraging you because mm. your second food moment t t takes us to Moscow where, and you went mm. with an Elizabeth David book given to you by your mother. And she used to read Elizabeth David, but, uh, you know, never cooked anything. There. She used to read it like a, a yeah. beautiful document. So <laughs> I went off to Moscow, you know, with enormous coat and fur knickers and, you know... <laughs> 
Um, and all these Elizabeth David books, which she gave me because she thought, I, as books have always nourished her, she thought I was going into this place where there would be, you know, nothing to eat. So at least I could read about delicious things to eat and sunshine and <laughs> lemons and Mediterranean skies and all of that. So yeah, that's what I had. But she wasn't no, she really wasn't. wrong. I mean, in 1990, mm. 1991, this is the Gorbachev era where things were really changing in Russia. I, Funnily enough, I was there oh, in 86. Okay. So I really yeah. know the yeah. central market that you talk about in this food moment. Tell us about that extraordinary experience of shopping at Central Market. I used to love going to that market because parts of it felt quite abundant. And if I just think about it for one second, I can smell every single part of that market from the place where there were the pickles to the rooms. There were two extra buildings at the back and one of them had dairy in it. And I can smell the sour tang of the sour cream and the yogurt. And then next to that was the butchery part where you go in and there'd be little waxy piglets and slightly hacked up pieces of lamb and pork and so it was such an adventure for me I learned such a lot and I learned a lot about seasonality because of course um you only had what they had I I learned a lot of things with dill in them naturally Mm. and walnuts all Mm. those things and all of the sellers from Georgia would come up because during communism the price of flights was set by the state so the price of a flight from Georgia was the same as it had been in 1950-whatever. And literally, these gold-toothed men would pack a suitcase full of lemons and fly up to Moscow thousands of miles and sell their suitcase of lemons and go back because, you know, the price of two lemons was probably the price of their flight. Um, but there, I really learned to cook seasonally and I learned to cook not from recipes because before then I cook, I've always cooked all my life, but I'd really until then probably relied a lot on recipes. And I, I, you know, I would, oh, if I haven't got a teaspoon of that, I can't make that. So mm. being there, I learned to improvise and just cook with what I had. And we yeah. used to entertain a lot because as you probably remember, there were restaurants, and there were some good restaurants, but there weren't loads of restaurants. Yeah. So the Georgian restaurants were The great. Georgians' restaurants were the absolute best. And I, I, in fact, I think, you know, now, when we've all been otolengified, um, that Georgian food reminds me of some of those I, recipes. I and they're so colourful and delicious and fresh. Um, so we used to love those. But also I used to entertain a lot. And it was a slightly weird life because my boyfriend then was a foreign correspondent and that's why I was there. And I think the foreign community then was about three, 4,000 people, mm. which is, you know, a third of the size of the village in France I'm now living in. So yeah. it was a very small world and you met everybody. So there I was, 24, having ambassadors around for dinner and really senior correspondents and amazing writers – I just did not know what I was doing, you know. 
but I was doing my best. And I think, you know, in my girl guide sort of way, I think that's all you can do all of your life, really. And I think that's when maybe I learned to let go a bit and love having people over because mm. it cannot be an exercise in perfection. So of all the wonderful things that you made for these expats and mm-hmm. diplomats and that wonderful community, why did you choose this particular food moment? And how on earth do you pronounce it? Gulubzi. It means little pigeons because what they are, it's um, cabbage leaves, minced uh, pork, beef, you know, and you can use a variety of minced meat and or, and or a combination and you wrap them in cabbage leaves, cook them in a tomato sauce and when they're all nestled in your pot, apparently they look like little pigeons in a nest. That's why they're called that. Um, and there's a version of it all over Eastern Europe, really. They'll have their own versions. And I made that because I did sometimes used to make it for other people, but mostly I would make it for us because it's this very nurturing, delicious, inexpensive dish, which um, I could always get the ingredients for, really. But also, I the thing about cooking, there's so much emphasis now in recipes on things need to be quick, they need to be fast, and when I used to write, or I still do, write recipes for some magazines, there would always be a pressure on you to cut down the steps, which meant that, because it made it look like a quick recipe. And not all good things are quick, and not all quick things are good. And the thing I love about the Galibzi, I love just sitting in my kitchen, at my kitchen table, rolling the filling in cabbage leaves, waiting for a sauce to simmer gently on the stove. You know, sometimes you have to rush a quick salad together, but sometimes just spending that time in the kitchen doing something gentle is so delicious in a world where we're all running around all the time. But it was it was there that you really became confident about how you were cooking and hosting. This, yeah. this is the, the theme that goes through your book is, is the hosting in a, you know, using what you've got to make people very happy mm. indeed. Your third food moment takes us back to your spiritual home, Stokey, Stoke Newington. Mm. Again, I was there in 85. Mm. Um, so I know these places that you're talking about so, so well. Tell us about the Fox Reformed Smoked Haddock in Tarragon mm-hmm. Cream. This is your third food moment in Stoke Newington when I met my husband we met at a wedding and we got engaged six weeks after we met and then we got married quite quickly after that so our brief engagement was a real process of just finding out not getting to know each other just finding out who the other person was really and I think it was um very early on because it was winter and it was really cold and wet outside. And he took me to Stoke Newington, which seemed like a just an extraordinary place. And I lived a mile away in Islington. It wasn't like I lived on that whole other side of London. I absolutely didn't. And he took me to this place called the Fox Reform, which is one of the first wine bars, I think. Certainly the first wine bar in Stoke Newington. I think when Robbie and Carol, who owned it, opened the Fox Reformed in the 70s, you know... Stoke Newington Church Street, which is now all organic frappuccinos and, and you know, um, all that. It was all like a burnt-out car in the street and an old sofa mm. and mm. boarded up and very 
depressing in a funny way, but lively in another way. And they set that place up. And Carol really used to love all the kind of Frenchy bistro, brasserie kind of food that I really love. So we walked into this place on this very cold night. And the windows were running with condensation. And the windows were full. That had a window that was full of hundreds of corks from bottles passed. And inside, there was a long bar down the left-hand side with all the locals and regulars sitting there chatting to Robbie and Carol. There was a fire in the grate. Down the other side, people, there was a whole row of people playing backgammon. They had a backgammon night, I think it was a Thursday every week. And we just sat there and we had this um, delicious, it's really one of the easiest recipes in the book, which is just smoked haddock in cream with a little gruyere on the top and tarragon. You infuse the cream with tarragon and then you just ram it under the grill and you serve it with bread. And we were sitting there eating <laughs> this smoked haddock in this incredible place. And I can remember thinking, yes, I can marry this man and we can live here. And we lived there for 22 years and I absolutely adored it and I still adore it and I feel very lucky to have lived there. People say now, oh, it's changed. It must have changed a lot since since you moved here. And yes, it has. I mean, property there is ridiculously expensive now. But in a way, the other changes are very superficial. It's always been a place that really embraced outsiders and difference and creative people it, it's a very accepting lovely place well you've got the fantastic farmers market there haven't you which is part of the wonderful growing communities which is mm. a template for how we should yeah. have a food system um you know i've been working with them uh, for right to food podcast for the food foundation oh my goodness that story they're incredible people it was the first organic and biodynamic farmers market in the country um your fourth food moment is right in France. It is now. It is you living in this wonderful new life. How's your French? It's it's not bad. And it's getting better because I have lessons every week. But I was I did French from when I was eight. Pronounce that recipe then you've chosen. <laughs> of of all of them though, why does this sum up where you are now? Well the village we live in is called Marcion. It's south of uh, Montpellier and it's on a body of water called the Etang de Tour which is a salt, massive saltwater lagoon which goes into the Mediterranean and this village produces hundreds of thousands of tons of oysters and mussels every year and when I fly back here into Bézier Airport. My heart lifts when I see we come over the lagoon and I look down and I can see this grid of oyster tables, which are these tables that go into the water and they grow the mussels and oysters on ropes there. Um, and sometimes we go over our house, which is a particularly special feeling. Um, but oysters and mussels here... People literally eat them every day. And in some cases, they are as cheap as chips. So, and I think that's why all the old people I see look just fit as fleas. You know, I think it's all the zinc. <laughs> um, and because the oysters grow in this lagoon, which isn't tidal, some of them grow very big. 
And big oysters, I find a little bit of a challenge to eat mm. raw. And there's a restaurant on the other side of the port from us called the Chateau du Port, where they do these beautiful oysters with a little, with some spinach underneath, a little creme fraiche sauce, a reduction with um, noix prava mousse, which is made over the road from my house, and then a little bit of gruyere on top. And it's just so delicious, and it's very easy, especially if you get somebody to open the oysters for you. I should think your Auntie Louie would be very proud of you, wouldn't she? I hope so. I hope so. Because it is taking food from the land and the sea Mm. and making it beautiful. I mean, bivalves are are what we should be eating. They are the most sustainable things. But in in that very old-fashioned way that you do what is around you, you Mm. eat what is around you, the Mediterranean diet is about all of that. I mean, you'll stay there, presumably, will you? Yeah, this is our home now. It's yeah. quite it's quite funny because the house has been empty for such a long time. If ever I'm working in the garden or something, and we have big railings right onto the port, really, and people invariably come and say hello, and they're interested because if they've lived in this village for a long time or they're from this village, they're very interested to know what's going on, as I would be. And the first thing they say to you is, "Do you live here?" And what they mean is, are you here all the time? Or are you just here, going to be here for the summer? Or are you doing an Airbnb? And as soon as they realise it's your home and you're going to be here all the time, people are so kind and friendly and welcoming to us because I think there's a feeling that we're bringing this little corner of the village back to life. Thanks for listening. You can read the transcripts to the show at chillysmith.com. Just click on podcasts and do sign up for my newsletter while you're there. You can also get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith on Instagram, where you can follow my adventures in cookery with Leith's online. Check the show notes and on Instagram for full details of how to get Cooking the Books discounts on Leith's cookery courses. I'll see you next week. 